0: Uh, have a chance to uh, change clothes and grab a lunch, and a sack lunch or whatever, and be back here by 11 to uh, head up to uh, the Jerusalem area. An awful lot to see and a lot to understand, so uh, we have the 15 passenger van, I don't know how many will wind up actually wanting to go, we might be able to get all in, if not, then uh, one or two cars might go along as well. So we'll we'll see how many actually turn up to go. Quitting time. I, I try to time a sermon from an hour to an hour and 15 minutes normally. Uh, so by the time we start, and then you have 10, 12 minutes to sing, and uh, prayer and, and, and announcements and all, It's usually 10 or 15 after the hour. So if I quit at 15 after, where I often do, that's just an hour of speaking. If I go on to the half hour, that's an hour and 15 minutes. So it's not really late. It's just later than I usually do. Uh, Your mind can only absorb what your rear end can endure. I understand that. Uh, Unless we're really excited. I know back in the early years... uh, I say early years, early for me, back in the early 50s, uh, often at the Feast, the sermons would go two, three, and four hours, and two a day was six to eight hours of sitting. So that was, uh, this is a picnic (laughs) compared. So we try to cram in all we can in about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. So uh, when I say I'm going overtime and I go down to the half hour, it's not really overtime, it's just a little longer than I normally go. So catch your nap in the first part and then if I go over you're you're still okay. All right, enough nonsense. Before we leave Ezekiel seventeen, I'd like to do a, a redact a little bit there and make an overall comment. This series isn't intended to go into all the details about everything we're covering because there would be no end. What I'm trying to do here is kind of summarize the end time events and give us a perspective of what has occurred and what is about to occur um, with emphasis on headed toward the Feast of Tabernacles and what it means for the church. But a comment here in Ezekiel 17, this was a parable and a riddle as written, And it was written like 3,500, 4,000 years ago. So God is precise. He knows the beginning from the end. And just to comment about how great our God is, that He could understand the personalities that would be involved here at the end. He would understand what would happen when He started a movement through Herbert Armstrong. He knew how it would grow, what would happen to it, and then what would come after. So, he calls it way, way, way ahead of time. They were playing a little dice game last night, some here, and oh, how they would have liked to have called how the dice would fall. And they'd shake them a little more or shake them a little less, and they still fell the way they fell. And... uh, God isn't that way. (laughs) He doesn't play a dice game. He knows. And He is precise. So, this parable and riddle in Ezekiel 17, no one could have understood except in retrospect. When you look at this, and commentators and historians have looked at it, Bible scholars... They tried to tie it to all kinds of different things, and especially in history, not realizing it was prophecy, and they had no way of knowing. And even we in the church are the only ones who would have a chance of understanding how this is talking about Worldwide Church of God and what happened to it. But in retrospect, looking back, everything that is said here fits perfectly the history of Worldwide Church of God. So, to me, it confirms and reconfirms that there is a God in heaven who knows what is going on, and He is very, very definitely controlling all events. So, what we see from there into the future, He also knows. And we can depend upon the sure word of God Uh, When he gives us these prophecies about what will happen to Israel and what will happen to the Gentile nations and all, we can count on it. And that's why we're watching right now, because we've read all these prophecies back here about the end times, and all we're doing when we're seeing hurricanes and earthquakes and various things that go on and wars and rumors of wars, all we're doing is looking at and confirming through the events that are occurring what God has already said was going to happen. He's way ahead of us. He wrote it thousands of years ago, and now we're just watching, which is Christ, what Christ told us to do. Watch and see how these things come about, because he's already written them down. All you've got to do is read it and believe it, and then watch for it, and it will happen. Now, a little emphasis here, before we go on, uh, in verse 22. Now, Herbert Armstrong reached high to take the twigs off the high cedar. But God said it will not become a tall cedar, it will become a, a vine that spreads out and its roots would be under him and it turned to him. Uh, so we went over that yesterday, but God says here, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar, and will set it. So God is, is something God plants, and he expects it to do well. Okay? I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one, and will plant it upon an high mountain and imminent. So he's going to plant it in a probably physically, geographically high place, but also give it uh, great status uh, in world-time events. Now, it won't be as big as a New World Order. That will be earth-encompassing. It will be small by comparison, only 10%, as we'll see, of the remnant of the church. But it will be given great power and great eminence and will be a light to the whole world. In the mountain of the height of Israel, so up in the mountains of ancient Israel, right, right here, will I plant it and it shall bring, when I say right here, I don't mean here in cane beds, I mean in Zion and the hill of Jerusalem and where the Mount of Olives is. If you, if you haven't seen that, it's really spectacular and there's some markers even uh, to show the importance of the area. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. And under it shall dwell all fowls of every wing, and the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. So they will be safe in the branches of a tree. You know, if a, if a bird goes into a thick tree, he's safe from the hawks and the bigger predators because the branches and the leaves protect him from that bigger bigger bird coming in and being able to attack So this is uh, symbolic of safety and protection. And they'll dwell in the shadow of those branches. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the eternal, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree. So trees are symbolic of churches. And this would encompass then all seven of those churches in Revelation 2 and 3 and the seven women that take hold of one man, as we probably will read in Isaiah 4. God will appoint a leader, and all seven, or people from all seven of the churches will then come as a remnant to follow the leadership that God has put in place. We'll get to that a little bit more later. So all the, all the churches are going to know that God is doing something. Only 10% will respond and come help, But uh, they'll see. And it may be that once they're in the tribulation is when they'll really see what God has done and they missed out on it. And hopefully that will lead to repentance because Zechariah does say that about 30% or a third will repent during the tribulation. Just a hard way to go to have to be brought to repentance. Uh, Better to do it ahead of time. So they'll know that He's brought down the high tree and have exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree, and worldwide was a green tree. It was, it was a, a, a growth mechanism. Many people came and have made the dry tree to flourish. So God is going to take that which is almost dead and cause it to grow and to produce. And it will become... Uh, a high tree and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. So look at the church today and it's virtually dead. So he's going to take a sprig uh, and it isn't, it isn't going to be an important part of it. It's going to be a twig, he says. Something small that he will take and he will tra- plant it and transform it in something that will be worthwhile and will no longer be dead. I hadn't thought of it, but just it just comes to mind right now that I think this is another indication that Worldwide Church of God was Sardis. It was the dead tree, (laughs) and it is from that dead tree that he's taking a green twig and building something from it. Now, with that in mind, let's lay, let's set the stage, if you will, on uh, how this is going to happen and what kind of leadership there will be. Because once we get the table set, uh, it's easier then to see how everything fits together. Now, Herbert Armstrong told me in 1981, I was in his office on a visit for another reason, but he got talking about this. And he said, uh, I am Zerubbabel. And I had read Haggai and Zechariah, and I didn't know what to do with them. But when he said that, it spurred some thoughts, so I went home, which was in Montana at the time, I was pastoring up there, and uh, made a study on it, and I saw that the church, the temple, certainly uh, there was a type there between Zerubbabel and Joshua in the church. That was pretty obvious, and he had picked up on that. Uh, He felt he was the rebel, and I suspect that he thought his son Ted was the Joshua of Zechariah 3. And I think that he did fulfill that in part, because his lifestyle was one that was in the fire and a branch that needed to be jerked out of the fire. And his father tried that with him, and I don't know whether it ever worked or not. I don't know about Ted's later life. Maybe he did repent. Maybe he'll be part of the kingdom of God, and I certainly hope so. But uh, the lifestyle there for a while uh, was not what it ought to be. So they fit as a type there. What he didn't grasp, and I didn't at the time, because I went home and preached that he was a rebel. And I don't think I was entirely wrong, nor was he. In that, he was looking at the panorama of history in a way, and must have thought that the former temple of Haggai was... The early New Testament church, the the first temple, and that he was building the latter temple. That's the only thing I can figure because the latter temple would be overseen by Zerubbabel and Joshua. We'll get to Haggai later. Uh, But worldwide turned out like Ezekiel 17 says it would, and they were not the final ones there is still a great work to be done and it is going to be done with great power from God. Now what he missed was the notation in Ezra and in Haggai that there would be old men around who would be able to compare the former temple with the latter temple and see that the latter was greater by far than the earlier had been. So there wasn't anybody around that was old enough to have seen The temple of the apostles in Herbert Armstrong's work that would have made them over two thousand years old. Nobody around, so he missed that, and and you can you can overlook stuff like that so easily in the Bible. So he was the former temple of Haggai and Zechariah. Now the temple has to be rebuilt with a ten percent remnant of what was. He called many. Now few are being chosen to finish the work. God knows where they are. Haggai says that he will stir them up to come and build the temple. Well, that did not occur under Herbert Armstrong. There wasn't a body of people out there to come. They were first called through him. So there wasn't anybody, there wasn't another organization to stir them from. Uh, Seventh-day Church of God, but it wasn't big enough to do that, and not enough people. So Herbert Armstrong was, in a sense, a partial fulfillment of Zerubbabel. I have no doubt of that. He was a man of God, and God used him to do a work. It's just that it did not turn out to do what needed to be done, but it fulfilled its purpose, now, Herbert Armstrong misunderstood. He thought Matthew twenty four fourteen and preaching the gospel around the world as a witness was his job, and then the end would come. He thought he was going to live till the end. Well that didn't happen. His real job was Matthew twenty eight, nineteen and twenty, to go to the nations and make converts of many people. So God would have a body of work to then choose whom he wanted for the latter temple. So it worked out that way. He just misunderstood his job a little bit. God allowed that, though, because it caused him to work hard to get done what God had for him to get done. So he let him labor under a little bit of a misconception for a while. And that's okay. Uh, He got the job done that God had for him to do. But the church did turn more to him than to God, and it had to be spewed out. And we've also seen that now, haven't we? That's not too hard to see, that the church has just been spewed out all over the world. Uh, Then a remnant has to come. All right, let's go to, first of all, Malachi 4. Now here he's talking about the end time church as well the first part of Malachi talks about the ministry and how uh, it did not do what it needed to do God was not happy with the ministry of Worldwide Church of God in the long run he may have been somewhat happy at the beginning but he wasn't as time went on and he said all tables were full of vomit and uh, all kinds of things were going on in the local churches that should not have been going on uh, misuses and abuses of power and all kinds of things uh, that occurred within the church we don't need to go through all of that and tell all our battle stories but uh, it wasn't what it should have been and Malachi makes that very clear though Herbert Armstrong thought that he and his son were Moses and Elijah here at the end and most of the church did they looked upon Herbert Armstrong as the Elijah to come who would restore all things and so on as it says in Matthew and Mark Uh, He restored a lot. And we saw in Ezekiel 17 that the doctrine was essentially correct. Uh, The living waters, the doctrine of God, a fruitful field. uh, On the basics, Herbert Armstrong was correct. God had led him to basic truth. Now, we've been able to add a lot to that as time has gone on because there were things that transpired with them and us, uh, that we can read in Ezekiel 17 and see in retrospect, but we couldn't see then. And a lot of the prophecies had to do with from here until 2026 20, and 7, a very short period of time now, uh, that they were not going to be part of and couldn't understand. Some still think that Herbert Armstrong was Elijah to come, but he died and the end didn't come. It's been three decades since he died, over three decades. So that obvious does not apply to him, and people are having trouble adjusting to that because they thought it so long. But it's not what happened. Uh, As I said the other day, when the two witnesses die in the streets of Jerusalem in a fight with the New World Order, Christ returns three and a half days later. So they will preach the gospel around the world as a witness, And when they die, the work is finished. And Herbert Armstrong and Ted both died years apart, and they didn't get killed in the streets of Jerusalem, and the resurrection did not occur. Therefore, he could not have fulfilled those offices in their final uh, fulfillment. They were a type of that, but it was only a type, and the final is yet ahead. Let's see this here in Malachi four. Uh, he's talking about God's people in the end of chapter three, and about how if they will talk of these things and and help and strengthen each other, that He will remember them when He makes up His crowns. Chapter four: For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven. Some tough times coming, <laughs> like like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a furnace. Uh, the, the heat's going to be turned up. And all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Eternal of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So we know from many scriptures that there is terrible uh, trouble on the horizon in which over 90% of the earth indeed will be killed. But unto you that fear my name, He makes an exception to the utter destruction that's coming. Those that fear His name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings. Now, here's an indication that healing is coming. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Calves of the stall means those that are are shut up, they're protected at night, they're well fed, they're taken care of. God will take care of His people. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Eternal of hosts. So much destruction is coming, but those who will obey God will still be walking around. Now, in verse 4, he says, "...Remember you the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded to him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments." So he says here at the end when the, all of these things are beginning to come together do not forget the law of God now his Christianity in this nation forgotten the law of God they've not only forgotten it they've said it's done away it doesn't even exist don't follow it he tells his people to remember it and the statutes and judgments that are with it Feast of Tabernacles isn't mentioned in the Ten Commandments is it well, in, in a sense it is, because it says honor the Sabbath. But he's speaking specifically there of the weekly Sabbath, obviously. And yet the annual holy days are listed in Leviticus 23 just after it. So they're Sabbaths as well, but they're part of the statutes. Uh, so he says, remember the law and the statutes and judgments. doesn't mean animal sacrifices, because that was just simply a penalty for sin and a reminder we have the Holy Spirit now to remind us, and Christ's sacrifice to forgive us. So the sacrifices aren't needed, but the statutes and judgments still point to the plan and purpose of God, as do the holy days as we go through each one. So we're going to see here when he mentions Moses in this end time, in the next scripture we go to that there is a type of Moses at the end time. It doesn't say it here specifically, but it does bring the name up and what Job's job was, uh, Job's, I mean Moses' job was, to bring the commandments and to be an administrator of those commandments, a judge, uh, an administrator of Israel and where they went and what they did, and to lead them toward the promised land. So, there has to be a Moses type who will lead God's people here at the end toward the promised land. Got to occur. Also, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the eternal. So, just at the end, before the day of the Lord, there will appear another figure who will be a type of Elijah. Excuse me. now I didn't fully comprehend that I think I understand it better now when I went back and went through the life of Elijah 1 Kings 18 and through that section I won't turn there for sake of time but doesn't it say the two witnesses can withhold rain from the face of the earth well that's what Elijah did three and a half years and then he prayed and it rained again uh, did he not destroy the priests of Baal? Yes, he did. In this end time, do the priests of Baal and the priests of Satan and the uh, unrighteous ministry of what's left of the Worldwide Church of God have to be reproved and taken down? Yes, it does. Uh, he also caused a miracle of food with a meal barrel at the widow's house. So, food is going to have to be provided spiritual and physical. Also resurrected the dead son. And I think we'll see some resurrections here at the end time, and I think this is a good indication of it because that's what was in Elijah's past. Now, why didn't God bring up at the end time a type of David or uh, Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or someone like that? Because the job at the end time uh, is encapsulated by the history of Elijah and what he did. Elijah was not the greatest figure in Israel's history by any means, but the things that he did and the things that God God caused to happen are going to be repeated here at the end. So that's why Elijah is singled out, and an end-time person will be a type of Elijah. Uh, There were also 7,000 people left who had not bowed their knee to Baal in Israel in Elijah's day. And Paul mentions that again. 7,000. So, uh, is it going to be about 7,000 who show up as a remnant of the worldwide church of God? I don't know. He says 10%. Uh, We did have up to 150,000 at the feast, but that included a lot of grandmothers and aunts and unconverted mates and children and... Uh, so how many converted people were there, as opposed to just bodies in chairs? Uh, only God knows. So if it was a, if 150,000 were the standard, we might have 15,000 gathered. But if there were only 70,000 who are actual members, then it may be 7,000. So somewhere in between there is probably the correct answer of the remnant that will gather could be 12,000 in terms of uh, 1,000 representing each of the tribes. I don't know. Time will tell. The Bible is is not, at least so far as I see now, completely clear about that. But if one of the figures is Elijah, and the 7,000 is mentioned in the Old and the New Testament, there's where I would think might be a clue. We'll see how that works out. Anyway, he says, I'll send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse. Uh, complete, complete destruction. Now, we've gone through this before, and we did Y.O.U. camps and all kinds of things trying to fulfill this, to make this work, to make this happen under Herbert Armstrong. And uh, very, very mixed results, I would say. Some programs were pretty good. Others were atrocious. But they tended to turn the hearts of the children to the counselors and to each other. And many times the YOU activities, parents couldn't even attend. Now, how's that? You know, they were turning them to the basketball coach sometimes more than they were to the parent. So I don't think this was truly fulfilled in Worldwide. There was an attempt made to make it fit. But in a larger view, I see three levels here of turning. What is the most important fulfillment of that verse? Turning the hearts of God's children to Him. That is the highest level of this verse. We have to turn our hearts to our Father in heaven. If we don't get that done, nothing else matters. So that's the highest and first level there. Then, (coughs) uh, I lost my thought. The second level here I'm, I'm trying to sort back out. The, the third, I, I think the hearts of the fathers uh, also means here a level which we can do in terms of the church. The church, our mother, uh, our fathers, uh, in, the, in that sense, Paul called himself a father <clears throat> because they were younger people. He, what, he didn't dress in a robe and call himself father and turn his collar around backward. So it wasn't a religious symbolism. It was like uh, God called me and he taught me this and I'm teaching you like I would teach a child. So there is that that has to be restored as well because look at the reputation of the ministry and where it went because of misuse and abuse and so on, which is chronicled right here in Malachi 1 and 2. So that level has to be straightened out as well. And then thirdly... uh, would be turning the physical children to their physical fathers. And it, it works its way the other direction, too. If, if a child is taught to respect his physical father, then he is on the road to respecting other authority figures, say in the church, and toward respecting his father in heaven. So we start at, we start with getting it right with God, because there's where all the answers come from. And then you work down through it. But at the same time, with our little children, we begin teaching them proper respect and proper conduct so that they are respectful to their elders later on. So there's quite a bit there in verse 6, worth a whole sermon really, that has to be done here at the end. But uh, didn't we turn too much to Herbert Armstrong and not enough to God? So... Now the emphasis is, let's don't be a bush under the ministry or over the ministry and put our roots there and look to the ministry. Let's look to God. At the same time, respecting the office that God has put there to help teach us and lead us and guide us to the Father. That's the function of the church, is to take you to the Father. And there's where the church made its biggest mistake. Uh, in not turning people directly to God. They turned to the church instead. In fact, even the organizational chart uh, showed uh, God and then Herbert Armstrong and then the evangelists and so on. That's the organizational chart they made with you know boxes coming down like a, a corporation. No, that's wrong. That doesn't work. Yes, the Father and the Son are at the top. But the church is not part... Of the direct corporate line. We need to understand this. The church is off to the side. She is pictured in Scripture as the mother. People say, well, the ministry can't come between me and God. That's right, it can't. It's not supposed to. It's supposed to be a mother off to the side that points the children to the father. She is there to help those children learn. She's with them day and night. She's there to help them learn to respect Dad when he comes home in the evening. That's her job. We are here, I am here, to help teach you to respect your Father in Heaven and for you to go running to Him. When Dad comes home, the children need to be ready to run to Dad. They're not under mommy's wings and her protecting them from dad as it is in some families. No, she's there to point them to dad. There's daddy! Oh boy, daddy's home! Go give him a hug! Point him to daddy. That's what my job is. Point you to daddy. I don't stand between you and daddy. I move to the side. You go directly to daddy. Go to your father in heaven. Now, You can come to mom sometimes if you need help or direction or encouragement. That's what mom's there for. But daddy's the head of the family. (laughs) That's the way God set it up. So mama, point them to daddy. Instead, the church often pointed them to Herbert Armstrong. That was a misuse and an abuse. So let's get the organizational chart right. Father, son, you... That's all there is to it. Father, Son, You. The simplicity that is in Christ. Mama stands over here and points You to Daddy. Never forget that concept. It's all about God. Ministry can't resurrect you. Can't glorify you. Only God can. And we can point you to Him so that you can get glorified. Encourage you, inspire you, educate you, help you. So that's what I'm trying to do. And I try to keep myself out of the way. You know, uh, the pastors and the, the ministry, they're there for a purpose. A purpose is point people to God and their personal relationship with God. I've said that, what, five times now? Let's get it. Let's understand it. All right, let's go to Matthew 17 because we need to understand the leadership that God is going to provide the church here to build the latter temple. Matthew 17, Christ did the transfiguration here, but it is very interesting who he called up in the transfiguration. Uh, after six days, Emmanuel took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them up into a high mountain apart. Uh, Middle East Jerusalem doesn't have any of those. You'll see some up here north of us. And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So he was there as a human being, uh, eating, sleeping with them, uh, walking with them, and so on. But in this vision he was transformed into his glorious state and behold there appeared to him to them Moses and Elijah talking with him why Moses and Elijah well we just saw that in malachi 4 that they are both to be types of them or to be uh, seen in the end time <clears throat> so he's teaching them some prophecy here is what he's doing he could have called up david Uh, He could have I mean they they didn't come to life. They were there in vision only. So they appeared talking to him, then answered Peter and said to Emmanuel, Lord, is it good for us to be here? (laughs) How do we fit in with Moses, Elijah, and you? Uh, If you will, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So the scene was the Feast of Tabernacles. And he thought, I don't really belong here, but I can at least build you some booths for for the three of you. While he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Now, why was it Feast of Tabernacles time? Because it's talking about the end time. It's talking about the time when all these events are occurring that are going to lead to the millennium and peace on earth. So, the setting is Feast of Tabernacles. "...and while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear you, him." Now, that is a monstrous statement that God made. The Jews looked to who? Moses. They were always talking about Moses. Well, here he had Moses and he had Elijah, who was one of the greatest prophets and uh, miracle workers of history. And God said, Look to my son. Now, is that part of the message we just read back in Malachi 4? Turn the hearts to the Father, turn the hearts to Christ Himself. He is the greatest authority. Moses isn't. Elijah isn't. <clears throat> Nobody is but them. So he's putting everything in focus and perspective right here. Look to the Father and the Son. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. When you come in the fo- and when God shows in glory, you fall on your face. When Satan shows up, you fall on your back. And Jesus came and touched him and said, Arise, don't be afraid. Now he tells us here at the end, just before the Feast of Tabernacles, just before the Millennium, <laughs> conditions will be bad. And one of the things he tells us several times is, Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Be strong. Be courageous. And work. Four things he tells the remnant church at the end uh, two or three different times and when they had lifted up their eyes they saw no man save Emmanuel only and as they came down from the mountain Emmanuel charged him saying tell the vision to no man until the son of man be risen again from the dead so it was almost time for him to die he says keep this under your hat uh, until I have died and been resurrected then you can tell the story And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? Well, the scribes did that because they had read the book of Malachi. And they were expecting an Elijah type to show up toward the end of the age. It wasn't time for the end of the age, but they thought so. All the apostles thought until they died that Christ was coming back in their lifetime. And Christ allowed them to work under that misconception. He didn't lie to them. He just let them believe that. (coughs) So it would spur them on to greater works. Just as I said about Herbert Armstrong, he didn't know truly what his actual job was, so he tried to go above and beyond, and that worked out fine. God didn't tell him every detail. Didn't need to know it. He wasn't going to live to see it. We're here, and we're living to see it, aren't we? So we need to know. That's why he's revealing it to us. So, why do they say, Elijah must first come? And Emmanuel answered and said to them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. So, he's he's projecting forward there, right? (coughs) But I say to you that Elijah is already come. And they knew him not, but have done to him whatsoever they desired. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then they understood he spoke of John the Baptist. Well, what did John the Baptist do? He came and prepared the way for Christ. And we have to have those at the end who come and prepare the way for Christ to return. So he says, You've already had one Elijah, and you didn't even know who he was, and they cut his head off. They did to him whatever they wanted chopped his head. But he says it's going to happen again. So that's why Malachi is there into the New Testament. <clears throat> or in the New Testament, Old Testament I mean <clears throat> and speaks of those things that must be done. So Christ is simply saying here it's already happened once right here in plain sight before you but it's got to happen again. Another fulfillment of it. Go from there to uh, Mark 9. And here... The same story, uh, and I won't go through it again, says the same thing. here, my son. Verse 11, and they ask him, saying, why say the scribes that Elijah must first come? A little bit of a different answer here. And he answered and told them, Elijah verily comes first and restores all things. So here he didn't say there's already been one. Uh, He's referring totally to the future here. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. So he says the Elijah that is to come is going to be treated like Christ was. Uh, He was persecuted, he was rejected, he was held in very, very low esteem or reputation, and was set as nothing and then killed. So he says the Elijah to come will have the same thing. I say to you that Elijah has indeed come and they have done to him whatever they desired as it is written of him. So they had killed John the Baptist and the future one is also going to be killed because he'll be one of the two witnesses and killed in the streets of Jerusalem. So they'll do to him as they want. But he will be held and counted as nothing. Lowest reputation available to men will be applied to the Elijah in the end just as it was to the first John the Baptist and to Christ himself it says here so it's going to be someone that will be held in very very low esteem or no esteem nothing so that will also occur now let's go to the book of Haggai. Now let's go first of all to Zechariah 4. Zechariah 4, again, we'll kind of set the table here because several are mentioned in connection with the end time leaders. Uh, Here in chapter 4, he's talking primarily about Zerubbabel, who will be the leader of the two. And then the question is asked, do you know who these two olive trees are down in verse 11 that are teaching the church, feeding all seven uh, the oil from the lamp of God? Do you know who these are? And I answered again verse 12 and said to him, what be these two which through the two golden pipes empty oil out of themselves, pour out God's Spirit to his people? And he answered me and said, know you not what these be? And I said, no, I don't know who they are. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by, or beneath, or with, the Lord of the whole earth. This is the only place in the Old Testament that two anointed ones are mentioned in a context like this, or two anointed ones at all. There's only one other place in the Bible that this is mentioned. Guess where that is? Revelation 12. flip back there. So it's a prophecy of the end time very clearly referring ahead to the two here. Chapter 12 of Revelation No, 11 I want, I'm sorry. There was given me a reed like a rod. The angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So, this was to be a measurement of the church, not the world. Let's go back up just for a moment into chapter 10. <clears throat> we came here recently when uh, we were going in Ezekiel, and it showed Ezekiel having to eat this little book, and it was sweet in his mouth like honey, and then it uh, upset his stomach. Well, John is given that same vision here, where... He's told to eat this book. It'll make your belly bitter, but it'll be in your mouth sweet as honey. So he took the little book, verse 10, and ate it, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So there is this little book is prophecy. It's what has to occur. And the two witnesses will be brought in in chapter 11. And they are the ones that have to do this prophecy to all the world, Matthew 24:14. Then the end will come right after they die. And the message is what? It's sweet to the taste because it's talking about the millennium and peace on earth. But it's bitter because of all the stuff that has to happen between the now and the time that that occurs. The stuff that we begin to see now. People being shot. People being killed. People being uh, flooded out of their homes. And it's just going to get worse and worse and culminate in the population of the earth being decimated. So that's the part that is bitter. The part that is sweet is that it's all going to end in Peace. And salvation for the majority of people that have ever lived. So then he gives instructions here to those that are mentioned back in Zechariah 4, or 1 through 6, primarily. But it says that they are to first take care of the church, measure the temple, the altar, the ministry, and then the worship therein, the members. But the court which is without the temple, leave out. Measure it not, it's given to the Gentiles, in the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty two months. So he says, Don't even go to the Gentiles. Don't talk to them yet. Go to the church. And we'll go back to Zechariah and we'll see that they are feeding the church, getting the church ready, preparing the bride. That's the first job of the two witnesses is to build the latter temple, to get it ready. Uh, to do the end time work. Then, once that is done, the Gentiles will come in and take it over, which we read in Matthew 24 and Daniel 9. And it says they will rule it and tread it underfoot for 42 months 1260 days, uh, 42 months, three and a half years. And it is during that time that the witness goes to all nations and around the world. And then is when he'll give power to the witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Then it says, These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. The only place I can be referring to, these are the two, these are the ones, the only place it can refer back to is Zechariah 4. Because it's the only other place they're mentioned in the whole Bible as two anointed ones. So he's saying very clearly here, if you want to know the story of the end time of preaching the gospel around the world and of getting the church back on track, go back to Haggai and Zechariah and the Joshua and the Zerubbabel that are talked about there. That's the only place you can go to find out about this. Because there it's laid out in detail. Now it's mentioned through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel and all, through all the prophets but there it's laid out in detail as to who they are and what they will do and it, so at this point then they go out and fire proceeds out of their mouth devours their enemies they can shut the rain off like elijah did and turn water to blood like moses did you know it's just when he says elijah and moses in malachi 4 and you read about elijah and moses in matthew 17 You come to Revelation and they're doing the same things that Moses and Elijah did. (laughs) Turning water to blood. Stopping the rain. Bringing plagues. Did not Moses oversee some awful plagues? Doing the same stuff all over again. This is real. And then the beast will fight against them and overcome them and kill them. And... uh, We don't need to necessarily read the rest of the story there because they're resurrected three and a half days later and Christ returns. So that is the end time work. That's the final temple. Herbert Armstrong was the former and he got a great calling. The two witnesses uh, typified by Moses and Elijah, by Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua, and by John the Baptist uh, are the figures on the scene to do the end time work and finish what Herbert Armstrong started. I'm not demeaning him at all. Uh, He did do a work that God wanted done. And it turned out exactly as Ezekiel 17 says. But this last one will also be done exactly as God says. In Haggai, Zechariah, Revelation 11, Matthew 24, and a plethora of other scriptures. So, there you have the table set as to who will be leading the church and preaching against the world in the end time. So, if you want to go back and read about Moses and read about Elijah and read about John the Baptist and go through all the scriptures about Joshua and Zerubbabel, you will have a pretty good grasp of the leadership that is to be in the latter temple. And there will be old men Around who saw Herbert Armstrong's work at its greatest, and they'll compare what comes after and say, this is by far better than that was. It won't be a low-spreading vine, and it won't be worldwide. It will be concentrated at Zion, and from there, the light will shine from the heights of Zion to the rest of the world. So it'll be small, with two representatives. Before God does something... He always has to have two witnesses, at least two, two or even three the Old Testament mentions. So nothing can be done unless it's established in the mouth of two witnesses. That's why God calls them two witnesses. We'll get into Isaiah later on, and he's not talking just of them, but he's talking to all of us and saying, you are my witnesses that I am God. So it's not just the two, it's the whole remnant that are witnesses that he are God, that he is God. And they will sit in the mountains of Zion, protected, and will be looked at by the rest of the world and hated because God will have given them peace and prosperity and protection that the rest of the world does not have. So, what is one of the basics of human nature? Jealousy which creates hate. And when God begins to bless His people and protect and help them, they will be hated of the entire world. And they will try to destroy them. There are going to be a couple of times when they think they have really gotten the job done. When we get the temple built, we get Jerusalem built, as Daniel Lyon tells us we have to do, and they come and defile it and set up their headquarters there we got it. Ah, what about those few that escaped to Zion? We don't worry about them. We've got the, we got the temple. We've got the treasures. We've got everything. They'll think they won. And then those two are going to come out and start doing plagues and uh, shutting off the water and turning it into blood and all these things that Moses and Elijah did, as Revelation 11 just told us. And then they're going to hate them. Well, we didn't completely win, did we? And this will go on for three and a half years, and they're going to get really, really tired of it. Then if you read the end of Revelation 11, it says that they will have a battle in the streets of Jerusalem, and those two will be killed. <clears throat> and then they'll make merry. They'll have a party. There'll be Twitters and, and texts and television programs and everything going worldwide, showing those two dead bodies lying in the street. And the beast and false prophet will say, We won. We whipped them. And they're going to lay there for three days, three and a half days. Won't be moved. Stay right there. And then Christ returns. And they rise to meet him. And everybody witnessing says, Oh, no. Because they'll realize they hadn't won. <laughs> Christ will prevail. The story is written. Everything that He's written about in the Old Testament, New Testament, has happened just as God said at the time He said, in the way that He said. He is precise. That's why we can go read through Ezekiel 17 about Worldwide Church of God, and it fits perfectly. What happened there fits perfectly with everything in Ezekiel 17, like a hand in a glove, because God can do that. And have faith and have confidence, then, that if he could do that, he can also bring forth these leaders. He can give them the power to do the things he says that will happen. And this will happen precisely according to the Scriptures. Because God is God. So fear not. Have good courage. Be strong. And work. That's what he tells us to do. Because there's a great work ahead. And we'll have more about that and how God is going to treat it, (coughs) which will be premillennial and sounds just like the millennial. Then we're getting into the heart of where I was headed with all this. I've taken four sermons to get this far, but I wanted to lay the background to show you how it's been from the beginning and what what an astounding announcement He made there in 27 A.D., And 1,900 years later, we have the coming of the end-time church. Exactly 1,900 years later. And then we have 100 years left to finish the end-time work. And now, most of that has gone. So the events are going to speed up, and things are going to get very, very dramatic here in the next months and year or two until 2026 and 27 when the 2,000 years is complete. (coughs) So understand it in that perspective and realize that things are going to get compacted and they're going to speed up a great deal here. And we're at that point where it has to happen. It can't go on much longer and be an echo from the mountains as it says there in uh, Ezekiel in another place. Amos is it somewhere in there. But that it's time for this to happen. And I think based on the 7,000-year plan and the fact that 2,000 years has almost expired since Christ made the statement that it's no longer future prophecy. Worldwide, it's fairly recent. Most of you here were in it and remember it. Some as children, but you remember it. Well, maybe. No, it's been 30 years since he died. Well, the church existed until about 96. And there's when, and that is when, by the way, that all this information that we're studying today began to be disseminated was in 1996. 70 years after Herbert Armstrong was given it. So, uh, everything's right on schedule. It ain't prophecy anymore. When you can, when we can look back and read scriptures and say, this was worldwide and this is what happened to it, You're right in the middle of things, aren't you? You're getting near to the end of them because Worldwide was the first and longest. It lasted about 70 years like the early New Testament church did. Seventy years. And that's when it ended. 1926 to 1996, approximately. And 96 is when this information began to be disseminated. So God is perfectly on time. He knows exactly what He's doing. All right, let's stop there and uh, get ready for a field trip.